Welcome to Reconvene 2021, sponsored by Juniper Square, which provides a cloud-based investment management platform used by probably more than half the real estate private equity firms in attendance here at Reconvene this year. I'm Moses Kagan, and this conversation is with Chris Powers, the executive chairman of Fort Capital, Texas-based real estate private equity firm with a track record of nearly $600 million in acquisitions and a focus on Class B industrial in all of the major metros of Texas. All right, so um, uh, I've been looking forward to this for weeks, maybe months, um, and uh, I don't. I, um, it's important to me that like, you guys probably know the story. Uh, Chris has a huge platform. I'm going to ask him in a second to describe uh, exactly what he's built, and he and his partner and his team have built to date, um, to just give everyone a, a real sense. But um, I want to focus today on one particular issue, maybe two particular issues, um, and those are uh, uh, his. His, his pivot in 2016, I think, into industrial, uh, which, and the reason we're doing all this is because I think there are a lot of you out here who, um, uh, who are either starting up, looking at starting a GP business or, or, or looking at pivoting to a different asset class. And that, um, we've thought about it too, and it's scary, and, uh, and Chris has done it in, a, in an incredible way. So we're gonna focus on that. And if we have time, we're gonna get into how he has gone from an entrepreneur to a platform. So that's the, that's the context here. We're gonna jump right in. Chris, tell us about what you built to date. Yeah, and before, just a round of applause for Moses. This has taken a... Uh Thank you. It's a lot of work. Thank you. Moses is one of the kindest, smartest people, and this was uh, no easy feat, and this has just been an Thanks, incredible dude, two days. Uh, so what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us about what Fort is today, to yeah. give people a sense. So Fort, um, we never really called ourselves real estate private equity until the last couple of years, but I really kind of think of us as like real estate private equity operators. Um, and we're based in Fort Worth, Texas. We're a fully integrated firm that acquires, finances, uh, manages uh, all the way to property management, our own properties. And really in the last five years have become known for a deep focus on kind of class B industrial, class B industrial flex assets throughout the major Texas markets. And so uh, we kind of say we're a pure play Texas, uh, which resonates really well in the market. We're kind of a pure play industrial, industrial flex. Um, and we syndicate on a deal by deal basis. So uh, we've, we've acquired, you know, almost over $700 million worth of this stuff over the last five or six years. Uh, everything sits in its own SPV, its own deal, um, with its own structure and capital partners and, um, yeah, we I think we have twenty six or twenty seven people now. So that's a that's a serious platform, uh, and uh, and hats off to you for building it. Um, what I think a lot of people don't know, uh, because we all met you once you were already in in industrial, is that you had a long and varied career in real estate, stretching back to I think when you were like seventeen or something. So which is insane to me. Uh, can you just like briefly give us? I, I want people to understand the 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 scope of your experience before the pivot to industrial. Yeah, so I grew up in El Paso, Texas, went to TCU in Fort Worth, Texas, and this was 2004. And uh, he's not actually here right now, but I think he's driving up from San Diego this afternoon. Uh, I had had businesses in, in high school really doing kind of like small thing. I was selling golf clubs on eBay and I had a lawn business, went to TCU and was like, I really need to make some money. Um, and just kind of really taking advantage of the time 
I was getting loans from Countrywide when I was 17 at 3% down, <laughs> 6% cash back at closing to buy rental houses near the university. So uh, I remember thinking at the time, like, why does everybody not do this? This is So you started out with like one for yourself to live yeah. with your buddies and then like... One, rented it out, bought uh, 12 throughout college, graduated <laughs> at the, in 08 at the bottom of the crisis, uh, had a leasing business, property management business, and then started flipping homes. And we can kind of get into it, but I've, I've, until 2016, I felt like I'd done almost everything that I could at that time within the world. Yeah, let's actually talk about it. So you, you, you did uh, these rental houses for home, for students, you were managing, uh, you built some spec stuff, right, too? Yeah, so in 08, right before the crash, Wells Fargo gave me a $250,000 line of credit, a revolver, uh, which for anybody in here that's basically uses cash. And I was gonna use that to just keep flipping homes near TCU. The, the crisis hit and we ended up buying foreclosed homes all over DFW. I met a builder through that, and then I started building student housing and apartments and duplexes and high-end custom homes and like anything I could build. Really got into land development uh, and land entitlement for several years. Again, kept kind of urban developing along the way. Um, and really got into this kind of land entitlement business, which was kind of unique to us for a while. We would assemble um, unentitled urban land and take the entitlement risk to take kind of big swings. Um, and was kind of just a ground-up developer for a long time, and I can get into why I I, my, I, I have such a soft spot in my heart for ground-up developers. Y'all are <laughs> amazing, um, but it's a very challenging business, and that kind of led to like, okay, let's figure out something where we don't have to ground-up develop. And yeah. Then we can yeah. Scale. Okay. So I, I appreciate you uh, giving us that background because um, I think it it sort of set, sets the stage nicely for for this this effectively a pivot that you made. Um, now, was this 2016 or so? Is that the right year? I think 2016 is when we bought the first deal, so we probably started thinking about it in 2015. Okay, so um, I really want to I, I want to spend a lot of time on this, um, and I, again, just to, to preface all of it, uh, the the someone who's done a ton of stuff has has developed deep expertise in this ground up development is now going to pivot his entire career to doing something entirely different, and that is really really scary, or at least it is. It sounds like really scary to me. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if it was to you. Um, it really was, I, I wouldn't say it was scary. I think, you know, my partner Jason sitting here and he can remember those days. I naturally am not a good, uh, I'm not very patient. I think we've shared this in common. True. Development takes a lot of patience. Um, and so there was a lot of things about the business that were making me unhappy. And there were a lot of things that I read from folks in the industry. I read a great book with Sam Zell and how he thought about real estate, which was, he doesn't develop anything. He just wants to know what he's buying it for right. and what he can rent it for. Yep. And so just a lot of things resonated. And then we just saw this huge opportunity. So I can kind of get. Yeah, let's let's ta let's talk about that. So, you, you know, you want to stop building. Uh, you you want to you want a, some, a, a relatively simple business. Where you can buy assets and have an idea about what you can rent it for. Um, why there, there are other parts. I mean, you could do office buildings like that. You could do apartments like what, wh why industrial? Like what, what was that thought process? Yeah. Um, well, part of the development that we had been doing again, these were kind of challenging urban infill developments. Uh, our tenants were very demanding and, you know, had lots of complaints and if everything wasn't perfect. Um, and so we, 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 from, you know, I think it's Munger and I'm not going to drop a bunch of Munger quotes like, uh, <laughs> but he says like, take a simple idea and take it seriously. And so we just said, we, I, I made a list in my head. Uh, and I just said, I want something that's easy to manage. 
I want something that when I am underwriting it, I don't have to underwrite all these factors. Like it's very simple to understand, almost to the degree that when you tell people what I look for in a deal, they're like, that just, what's the catch? There really is no catch. And then we just looked at the world. I mean, all real estate is, is, a, by, is a byproduct of uh, what humans are up to. Um, you know, LA and, and California does amazing because people love to be at the beach as long as in, in good weather and, and all those things. As long as those simple things stay intact, like there's a lot to be said about real estate in this part of the world. So as you looked at industrial, it was some really simple questions. It was like, is e-commerce going to continue to rise? Yes. And, and, I, and I think that's where a lot of the, um, the attention goes is e-commerce. But the truth is, if, even if you look in our portfolio, a lot of our tenants are the companies that take care of the built world, and they actually build the built world. So DFW right now is a major market where it's, uh, I think, the most home building going on in the country. Where is all the roofing material being supplied, and the electrical supply, and the plumbing supply, and when these highways are getting built? Like, who, where are all these tenants, where, who are they occupying? A lot of that is the buildings that we own. So it was kind of this bet on, okay, you have this new emerging uh, e-commerce class of tenants. Then you have um, this thesis of like, if the built world's gonna continue on and we're gonna maintain it, those tenants will do well. Um, supply constrained asset classes, which I know you are a huge fan of. Yeah, talk about that for a second, because no one's building this stuff anymore. Yeah, you can't build this stuff. So um, I, I, there, was a, there was something in a JLL report the other day, I think I put it on Twitter, but it said there's been three billion square feet of industrial built since 2007, and less than 3% of that has kind of been the shallow bay multi-tenant infill stuff. Um, and that's because you can't find, I mean, even if you take where we are right now, imagine finding a 20 acre piece of land. Yeah, forget it. Yeah, for like 10 bucks a foot that you could actually build. And even if you could find the land, cities really don't want to see new industrial going up in the, in the guts of these cities. They want to see, you know, higher tax dollar, uh, higher ad valorem tax properties. And then third, the cost to construct. It's literally just cost prohibitive. So even if you could find those two things, the actual thing of building, then I said, um, okay, let's look at like the tenant base in general. So, you know, if, if you own a class B multi-apartment and you may, or if you're, if you're a tenant in one, you make some good money, you might opt to go buy a house or move to a class A building or buy a condo or something. If you start a business, you might start in a class B office building and then as that does better, you move into a class A office building. But in class B industrial, if you do better as a tenant, you don't go into a class A industrial just more, building. Just more, more space. That's a function of your business. You need like, I just need bigger clear heights or I need you know a better manufacturing line or a better way to store. Maybe then you would move into a class A. So what really happens is the more successful you get, you just grow within it. Um, and to go one step back, not only am I not competing against new supply, we actually estimate in Texas it's depleting one to two percent a year. And that's because people are redeveloping yeah. the stuff for other. For they're other they're tearing it down to build. Like if if anybody's ever been to Uptown in Dallas, it's one of the most prolific kind of resurgences of a community ever. It was all in an old industrial park, and that's really the case in Nashville, Fort Worth, uh, Houston. It's all these revitalized uh, industrial parks. So it's either being torn down or repurposed into creative office, entertainment, stuff like that. Okay. So um, now I want to ask though, so, so this all makes sense. And, and, it, and, it, and I think sometimes in business, um, we, we can be guilty of looking back and retrospect and kind of like constructing a, a, a clear narrative like that, that perfectly explains why yeah. we, 
but you must have been thinking about other areas too. Like while you're thinking about Class B industrial, yeah. you're, were you also thinking about doing office or something else too? Or, or did you quickly zoom in on industrial? Yeah, it was actually, I don't actually even know if I've ever tweeted about this or talked about it publicly. Jason will remember this, but we actually hired two teams. We hired a Class B apartment team and a Class B industrial team. <laughs> I pitted them against each and, other. And, and that was the thought originally was like, okay, we're going we're gonna to do these two things. And I, we're going to talk about focus and everything else. And really what materialized from that was um, Class B apartments, even in 2016, like the cow was out of the bag. It was hot. It was booming. I mean, we've talked to Keith, you, all these folks in here. Um, and we just said it's really competitive. Uh, the size that we wanted to do was we were like immediately trying to jump into 50, 60 million dollar deals, uh, which is pretty much every deal now if you are buying big apartments. And we were just losing out on every opportunity, not because... And we didn't want to be the guys that won our first deal because we just paid the most. And Class B Industrial was just not being looked at by anybody. And it made more sense to us than anybody. And going back to what we first talked about is it's very easy to manage. It's, these are not, you know, you don't drive by these buildings and get all warm and fuzzy. These are not pretty buildings. Um, now we try and paint them and make them look a little prettier, but they're, 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 they're um, easy to manage. They're kind of out of sight, out of mind. They serve a great function in society. And the easy to manage part was a big deal for us. Sure. Um, managing complex real estate is really hard. It's demanding. I know. That's where I'm getting my gray. The gray <laughs> yeah. in my beard is coming from. Yeah, I imagine how gray I would be if, uh, <laughs> if we did. Um, so a lot of it was the macro factors of what we're doing, but also, again, Jason came from the home building business. I came from home building. We built high-end million-dollar spec homes. We had just dealt with you knew how painful this pain. is. Pain. And right. we just said, let's do also do less pain. And candidly, buying 300 apartments with 300 families that live in, that's not necessarily great. Um, no, it's, it's really not easy. genuinely difficult. Yes. Um, so, okay, so you have two teams. Um, and they're both out looking for deals. And it sounds like the industrial team starts to get traction first. Yeah. Who were those people? Like, did you hire a young broker to come in? I think, or, or, or who, who, who did you bring on to these teams? Yeah, so we hired, uh, originally we hired um, a, a great lady named Sarah Lancart, who was the number one uh, kind of class B industrial broker in, in the Fort Worth market. And I've heard her podcast with your, uh, if, if anyone wants to hear about it, she's yeah. she's fantastic. And uh, the, the podcast that she did with Chris is really good. Yep. Um, how did you convince someone who was doing so well in her career to come on board with you? You know, we... Uh, Besides being charming. Yeah. <laughs> it took a year. I met with her a lot of times. I remember Jason would ask me like, is she going to say yes? What, what's taking so long? It took, she was a partner at this firm. Um, it, so that, that took a while. But, you know, candidly, and, and again, I think we'll talk about this, momentum breeds momentum. We were having a lot of success. Uh, it was, she could see that, you know, we were being successful in the things we had chosen to do to date, and this might be a great opportunity. She wanted to get onto the principal side, uh, didn't want to go to a big firm, was coming from Transwestern, which is a big, you know, commercial real estate firm, wanted to be part of something small. Um, and we offered her a great incentive to kind of help us get into the industry. I mean, candidly, and we've told her this, she taught us a lot about the industry in the early days. I love this. This is a kind of a theme that I think you guys have probably heard that this is this links the, what Keith was talking about. Uh, it This idea of bringing in expertise from the outside of the organization, being willing to share the upside and the rewards with them in order to, to, to learn from that expertise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I as I even sit here today, is like my... 
I kind of say this tongue in cheek, but I, I really kind of mean it is like my job is to actually be the least relevant person in my office. Uh, what I really mean by that is my job now is to assemble a great team and make sure that they're incentivized, that we're thinking smart, that we're doing the right things. And so it now it comes like if I even feel like I'm better at something in the company, that's like, a problem. This is a huge issue. Okay, um, that's really interesting. So, yeah. okay. So did she, t so you brought her in. Did you also bring in some young people who were inexperienced for her to teach? Did, was she teaching you? How was, how did that uh, information, that expertise dif diffuse through the organization? Yeah. Um, so we hired her, and again, just to be clear, we were still doing lots of other stuff at this time. So it was like, we're gonna hire this team, and hopefully this takes us you know, to the promised land. Um, and I think the goal was, she was gonna start um, you know, buying and doing things, and then we hired this other team. And really, what happened out the gate is like in the first six months, I think we did two or three industrial deals like right out the gate. And so that side of the company was starting to pick up, and it didn't take but a year for us to make the decision, okay, we're not doing any multifamily at all. We're, we're gonna just going to stay part. here. And then you just start really putting all the resources into who do we need to hire to, to accompany these people. Okay. Now, um, I guess that my next question is, so we're, uh, you know, the, another theme that's that kind of run through all these talks is like the chicken or the egg problem of like deals, capital. Um, you, you obviously have a track record at this point. You've mm -hmm. probably made people a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. So you have people who trust you. Yeah. On the other hand, you're like, we're about to buy something that we don't, I've never done before. And yeah. yes, I've hired this person who's good, but like still we haven't done it before. Yeah. Um, what were those, who, who, who was the capital and how, what were those conversations like? Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. I'll take two steps back before I answer that. So another thing that was happening in 2016 and we were similar to Mark Gilbert yesterday. We were a Fort Worth market expert, had all these different types of deals going on. But I've had dreams of building a really big company. Um, and, and I think a lot of this talk is to take it from a standpoint of like, what are your goals? Because what we did isn't right if your goal is not to build a big company. But we want to build a big company. Um, and part of what was happening in 2014, 2015 was I would bring a, you know, a deal, we'd be building townhomes, we need to raise five million bucks. The more money we kept trying to raise, the conversation kept coming back. We know you, you'll probably be successful, but there's gonna be a guy that walks in here tomorrow that only does townhomes. That's all he does. And I would rather give that guy the five million than you because you know we look at your website, I don't know if you're gonna wake up tomorrow dreaming about student housing. And that kept coming up over and over. And I remember Jason and I talking, was like, okay, that's a problem. Um, people want to see focus and that actually was like so recurring that it didn't take me but two or three months to go oh wow okay so now fast forward to where you're at um, where we actually had where was the money coming from so we had uh, we had success we had a lot of high net worth and family uh, friends and family money and really we just even though we weren't a pure play industrial company yet we just started telling everybody we were like, oh, interesting. We were just like, this is all we're going to do going forward. And this is before you bought the first deal or after this is maybe after you bought one or two. Yeah. This was probably after we had bought one or two. And um, like, so you buy one or, cause you're, you're not, you haven't gone full cycle on these deals yet, right? Like you bought them, you maybe you start turning the tenants over. Yeah. 
so you could presumably show, maybe you could show like some new leases signed that sort of starts to validate the thesis or not even that yet. That and we had Sarah. She had 12 years in the business. So we were like, she came. Obviously, she, she wouldn't leave Transwestern as a partner to come here if we didn't have something going That's on. That's really interesting. And so, so what we yeah. were able to provide her, and this is, I mean, look, your back office of your real estate office can... F Accountants don't care what asset class it is. Uh, there's a lot of people in the company that don't necessarily taste care. like chicken. I get right. it. Yeah, like yeah, chicken. Yeah. So what we were giving her was like the support, but you're in, in return you're going to bring industrial into the company. And so you're able to piggyback on her reputation and network and yeah. and okay and expertise. Okay, so so people are willing to trust you to do those first deals. Um, you do a couple, of, and then you start telling people we're an industrial company. Yep. Was it scary? Was like, I mean, was it, was it like, so there's that Annie Duke concept of, I think it's Annie Duke, the small bets, like, like entrepreneurship is like a series of you do these small bets. Um, was it one of those or was it like, we're burning the boats and like, we are an industrial, did you change the website? Was it yeah. just like for capital is an industrial <laughs> company and that's it? Um, I think, okay. So we did a deal or two and then, but again, on this thing of focus and like recruiting and I haven't talked about recruiting yet, but Everything made sense to us that the more we become this singular focus company, we'll recruit better, we'll raise money quicker, we'll have better deals with brokers, we'll just, everything should, the floodgates should open up. So it was, this is all in hindsight, right? I don't think yeah. in real time it was this, but it was let's become a singular focus company to the world as quickly as you can. And I think it's what a lot of the people in here that are on Twitter and that share a lot are good at is like, the quicker you can tell your story and beat that drum over and over, people remember it quick. And so, um, but I remember like with Jason, we, we were like, okay, this is working. Class B multi is not. And I, I don't know if it was a definitive conversation, but I remember we just kind of mutually agreed, like this is all we're gonna do. And this is what we're gonna tell everybody we're doing. And when you beat that drum, not even in the office to the team, but to the outside world, it, you just kind of become what you. Kind yeah, of you speak it into being. Right. I mean, I'm familiar with that. You guys have heard me talk too much, um, yeah. but <laughs> um, and I think, uh, I, but it is an important message to repeat, which is to say that uh, running one of these organizations is really just telling the same story over and over and over again to everyone who will listen to you, and even people who don't really particularly want to be listening to you, you still tell them. And if there's one thing I've learned, and I think you know, you could say Twitter's taught us this, but just being in, uh, you know, out in the market. As soon as you think you're tired of telling your story, that is when most people are just starting to listen. I agree with you. So beat the drum like incessantly. And that's what Twitter and a lot of things, the podcasts have been great for us is I'm tired of talking about class B industrial, but then I come somewhere like here and people are still excited. Super excited. Right. right is the story is not over and you just have to keep telling it. So, okay. So you start to do your first couple of deals. Um, do you, so you've got, uh, this woman who comes in to kind of validate, uh, your, uh, the expertise and everything she's brokered. So presumably her expertise is on the transaction side and, and generating deal flow. What about the asset management piece? Cause there's an el another element of this is do knowing what to do with these buildings once you own them. That's a great question. And I don't, and I'm going to give a, the real answer. Um, you know, for so long, again, we were developing, we were building, we were doing multifamily that doesn't have a huge asset management component. A lot of it's merchant build. You're building the home, you're selling Sell it. it. Yeah. Now we did have apartments, but not a ton. Um, I remember and what I'm getting with that is like Jason and I were just so naturally involved in the buying, the kind of managing of the deal. But I remember it took about a year. We were like four deals in and we're like, 
who the hell is focused on this every day? Because Jason and I are building the company. So, and then it was like this aha moment of we were doing a good job, but it was not anybody's dedicated role. And that was 2017-ish. That was kind of the impetus of like, okay, we need teams that work in harmony, that, that do these select things. And if we're gonna grow really big, you know, we need to be able to digest this stuff as it comes in. So the answer to that question is like, there was probably a year where asset management was just Jason and I like periodically having like a fire drill to get something done. <laughs> and then we've really put in the, the, the wheels in motion that this has to be a thing within the company. And, and is that person that you brought in, um, someone who had done specifically asset management for class B industrial before, or was like, who, who was this person? Yeah. Uh, the answer is no. Um, I think they were, uh, they were a multifamily asset manager. And, and again, they, I remember them showing up and kind of thinking, oh, this is way easier than mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, You're going to convince me on stage here yeah. that i got to stop buying apartments. We're going to do a deal before we leave. <laughs> um, no, it was a, it was a multifamily. And, and also, again, 2016, 17, it's not like there was all these asset managers from the Class B industrial world. Just right, you have to train around. someone anyway. Right, yeah. it was not a very sought-after asset class at that time. Okay, so you've got this person in, um, and now this is something actually I've never asked you before. Um, in terms of operating these things, um, are the people? Do you do do, um, do you do the leasing internally, or are you farming out the the, the leasing to third party brokers? That's a great question. Uh, we farm it out. So in Texas, it's such a big market, and you what we found was one when you do brokerage internally. Uh, Brokers also know that you do it internally, so well, they don't gonna kill sometimes your, right. know what side of the fence you're really on. So you fight that battle, but really in Texas, there's such great companies with folks that are so hyper focused in these little sub markets. It would just be dumb for us to try and compete with that, in our opinion. Okay, so you 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 build the you build an asset management function, and really what that is, and and you were actually outsourcing property management in the beginning too, right? Yeah, we just said uh, until we can build a profitable, sustainable property management, we'll farm it all out, and then as soon as uh, we have enough scale and we can just run a quick budget and go, yeah, we would be profitable, could hire great people. We'll bring it all in house. That's the smart way to do things as opposed to what we did. <laughs> you slugged it. We, yeah, we incubated a property management business and, uh, and bled for it. I'll be honest. We had it too early on and we, we shut it all down because it was a total <laughs> Just a disaster. Yeah, it was a disaster. As subscale, you're trying to grow to two companies at the same time. I have like utmost respect for that you stayed well, with it was, that long. Well, uh, it was uh, <laughs> idiocy more than anything else I would say uh, and stubbornness. Um, uh, okay, so um, you're, you've built uh, this acquisitions capacity, and I think um, uh, without wanting to get too far into the details, this woman who you hired, whose name I'm forgetting again, Sarah. Sarah. She, after a while, decided to go back to brokerage. Yeah, this. How long do we have to talk? But the the incentives just kind of had changed, and you know we were really growing. I think when you take a broker out of the broker world, they love brokerage. And there's always the question of, you know, can we do some side deals or just broker a deal here and there? And our answer is a hard no. We, we do not ever want a broker in the market to think that we are competing with their job. I admire you for that because the temptation is there it's, for us oh, to do it there. too. And it's like, and I, honestly, we've given into that temptation because it's easy money. We've done it too. Yeah. But over time, um, you, you really have to pick your lane. And candidly, I'm kind of speaking out of both sides of my mouth because now even the biggest brokerage shops, they all have investment arms. <laughs> right. They come like, back and compete paying. with you. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
But yes, she ac- actually uh, went and started another brokerage shop and also buys Class B Industrial. And I, I won't go too much into that. Every acquisition person that we've hired has left us to either go start their own acquisition buying company or join a competitor doing the same damn thing. And, you know, so we've, we've, one of that, and it's a real struggle that we've had uh, over time is um, as I've thought about recruiting, um, and both on when we used to do brokerage, we so we had some agents who we trained, and then some of them have gone out to compete with us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> um, and and then and then when we're thinking about internal hiring, it's like, do you bring in a rock star yeah. who you know you know is going to kick ass, but is also like very likely to go out and compete with you? Yeah. Um, it sounds like you guys have opted to bring in the rock stars, even knowing that that was a risk. Um, but walk me through that thinking. Yeah. Um... Look, people that are, even if they haven't, starting your own company, you're not just an entrepreneur because you start your own company. You're an entrepreneur because you're an entrepreneur. And most of the people in acquisition roles or these high biz dev roles, they're very entrepreneurial. They want to make a lot of money. They, they might not have started their own company, but that's okay. And so you're always fighting this battle with them um, of, on one end as the owner, you're like, I think you make too much money. And they're looking at you being like, I don't make enough. Right. And, it, and then the back of your head all along, you're like, I don't even know why we're fighting this battle because you're going to be gone in a year or two anyway to go do what you're going to do. Um, I, I'm not going to get into it because don't, I don't have enough time. We actually have no acquisition people on staff today. And we underwrote 168 deals in the first two quarters this year compared to 44 last year where we had three acquisition people on. So that's a whole nother conversation. Is that you doing the, the underwriting? Who's doing that? Uh, we have a team. Okay, you have a team. Right. I haven't underwritten a deal. <laughs> you don't want me to underwrite a deal. Um, uh, but the answer to your question is, it's how do you incentivize people? Um, and if you are going to have acquisition people, you kind of have to know the game that you're playing. And so incentivizing them well, but also incentivizing them for the long term. What are things you can do to keep them on the long term? So if they're in the promote, are they vesting over multiple years so that... Um, what you also find with acquisition people is they leave you the day after their big bonus came in from the last <laughs> deal they bought. Uh, Jason is the, the uh, person that, that put this in place, but we have what's called a rolling bonus. So y- nobody in our company ever gets paid the big bonus all at once. You get half, you get, it goes into a pool and you get half of your bonus every quarter. So you're always kind of working, if, I, if it was $100,000, you get 50 now. You, you have 50 in your pool, you get 25. Whatever's in there, you get half of as it goes. So you have to incentivize for the long term. And then really, I think the other thing with acquisition people is they get paid a lot, but the whole team is doing all the work, all the due diligence, all the underwriting, all the transactions, all the operations. But for some reason, the industry has designed itself that one big fee gets paid to one person at closing, but the other 25 people on the team like eat out of a totally different bucket. That creates friction even within the organization. And so we just like looked at all these things. And, and again, I think the last thing is we opt to hire killers. This goes back to the, I think the yeah. Jeremiah Crow thing. If you look in Texas and around the country, all the biggest kind of big new up and coming commercial real estate firms are all Trammell Crow ex-partners. But guess who's still the biggest and the baddest? Trammell Crow. We've taken the approach that abundance mindset. I would rather have people leave me and go on to do great things than hire people that would never leave me because I'm scared that they could leave me to go do great things. I admire you for that. And I, I've, I've watched you interact with competitors and you're nothing but gracious and yeah. cool about it. And I, it's something that I struggle with, honestly. And, I, and I, I've learned that from you. I, I really yeah. appreciate it. Um, okay, so, um, so you're, you, you start to have some initial success. 
uh, buying these things. Tell me about what happens to the deal flow. Like as, so you, you start, you're now you're closing, yeah. uh, you're building a team, you've got, it start, it's starting to, to hum. What, what starts to open up for you both on the deal flow side and on the capital side? Like how are you balancing the chicken and the egg there? Yeah. The, the, you want to be known for something. And so whether it's people you're recruiting, brokers in the market, capital that you're trying to raise, like when you are known for something, it, it it, and you're good at it or reasonably good at it, everything seems to get a lot easier. It's easier to raise, uh, you know, we've raised $60 million worth of capital in the last 60 days. It probably felt more effortless for us than when we were trying to raise 2 million but had lots of different deals going on. I think we as humans get lost in this idea that being busy means we're being productive and getting a lot done. And I think what, you know, Jason and I would tell you in here is like, Five years ago, we were busier than we've ever been. We were kind of worn out and we weren't like looking back actually as productive. So the answer to your question is, um, as the deals have come on, raising capital is much easier because when I go sit with you, I have one thing to tell you. This is what we're focused on. This is what all 27 people are not only focused on, but incentivized on. I'm not waking up tomorrow dreaming about student housing or something else. This is what you get with us. Um, the second part is, as you really start recruiting what, what I call killers uh, or great talent, they want to join a firm where they know what what's happening. Um, again, we would talk to a lot of great folks that are like, you know, you're successful, it's great, but I don't have, you can't even tell me what I'll be working on a year from now. Um, and so we would lose out on that recruiting. So recruiting gets better. Well, guess what happens when you have better talent? You find more deals, you operate them better. Like, it's a virtuous cycle. Um, and then in the market, you know, I think Mark talked about this yesterday. He couldn't have moved to Phoenix and gotten that first call. You want to, the first call in real estate is, is there it's anything a, better? Yeah, no, it's the best. It, it's, it's the holy grail. Um, it, took, it takes a while, but you're never going to be the first call if, if you're the first call in five different asset classes. Now, you might be in a market for sure, but you're constrained by that geography. And so we see more deals. Uh, we recruit much better and we can raise capital much easier with a line of focus. Now you, and this is, correct me if I'm wrong, but for a while there, were you working, was the capital coming from someone who was handling the syndication on your side and have you moved to more of direct raising or have you been doing the direct raising all along? Say that one more time. So when you were, I, I listened to one of your episodes and it was, I blank on the guy's name, but there was a syndicator that you were partnering with, I think who was bringing in some of the capital. Am yeah. I get, right? Yeah, yeah. Sanjay, yeah. Right. And now, now, but now you're raising directly, right? Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. So, yeah, we, we have, I think, over 700 folks that are signed up in our system. We have optimized, and I think this was said yesterday, and it couldn't be more true. I think there's this, like, eternal debate. Who's the customer, the, the investor or the tenant? Uh, and there's really, I don't think, really any right answer. Our belief is we're so convicted in treating the investor amazingly well, which is providing them great returns, a great experience, ultimate transparency, that the only thing we know how to do is treat our tenants amazing because the great returns won't follow. Now, some people say, no, treat the tenants well and your investors do well. It, it, it doesn't really matter. But we have optimized for raising capital. And so we have an investor relations team um, we've put a ton of energy and time into every thought process from the day you meet us to the day you put your first dollar with us to what that first quarterly report looks like. And now we have opted to, you know, I, we have this conversation all the time. I said we raised $60 million over the last 60 days. It would have been very easy for us to pick up the phone and call one group and just say, like, we'll do it all with you. 
what we believe is the world is the democratization of capital is well underway. I mean, even this amazing room of all these people that are investing, we're all starting to come together. This could have never happened 10 years ago. And so we're just gonna keep focusing on more investors, um, syndicating deal by deal and kind of sticking to that. I think the, the big kind of question mark is if this market dries up, who's gonna be left at the bottom of the market you know, investing? And on that end, we're always talking to the big investors. We're just not taking their money. That makes sense to me. Now, um, you, you said a lot of thought has been put into that. Mm -hmm. um, did you uh, bring in someone who had built one of those teams for a syndicator elsewhere, or did you guys have to kind of figure it out internally? I would say it's not just here. I think it's the case with most of what we've done is we come from the school of figure it out. So like nobody on our team, I think, comes from an industrial background historically uh, now, today. Um, I think uh, this goes back to just great mentors. I've just peppered people with questions over the years, like how do you do it, what do you do? And it's been really important to us. I think in our industry, it gets lost a lot that the investors, like once they give you the money, it's like, Thanks, but like, I'm in the real estate business. No, you're in the no. investor management business uh, too. And I think a lot of folks, especially early on, and then I fell into this camp, um, you know, do you report to them quarterly? Yeah, you know, when we get around to it. You will grow a quicker company getting loyal investors than you will just finding great deals if you treat your investors really poorly. So it's just always a focus. And when that's always a focus, good ideas kind of happen and become reality. So I think this is a great um, turning point now to talk in the, the little bit of time that we have left about this transition from um, like an entrepreneur-led organization, one that's basically you and maybe Jason with like a bunch of people kind of orbiting around you, but you're the ones who make things go, yeah. to uh, a, a real platform, one that has sort of institutionalized practices and all that kind of stuff. Um, talk me through how you think about that and what the challenges are. Again, I think, and, and I certainly fell into this camp, and I give Jason a ton of credit in how we thought about this. Um, Jason knew that I wanted to build a really big company. Um, he, he, my biggest fault as an entrepreneur, which I think we all fall into, is I knew what we were going to look like 20 years from now, and every day that we didn't look like that right now pissed you off. was pissed me off, yeah. and that created chaos in the office. What Jason's amazing at is going like, I hear what you're saying, but if we don't do these three things today, like that ain't ever going to happen anyway. Um, and then the second thing about our industry that I find weird and, and I fell into this camp forever is everybody thinks GPs think of their opco as some like fledgling entity that should barely make any money and just like barely keep the lights on to keep their deals going. But then you look at a company like Blackstone that clearly charges fees and, and, and they have the, the largest and the best team assembled and in their slice of the world, the best returns. Um, you know, they might not make the best returns on a, you know, percentage basis to what a small person could do, like Mark's, you know, crazy deals from yesterday. <laughs> but for their capital source of the world, when you're deploying $10 billion, repeatable, repeatable returns. Um, and so we just said, uh, we want to manufacture returns for investors. That's what we want to do. That's what Blackstone does. That They were kind of a guiding light for me. That's what Sam Zell has done. We are a manufacturer of returns for our investors. And we want to do this at scale, which means we have to have a real company, which means we have to pay people like well and like do things like a real company. And I think where our industry gets kind of weirded out is, and you talked about this earlier with um, Neville, everybody gets into this business thinking about the deals. 
everybody that starts a GP, there's nobody that ever starts a real estate GP that's like, I'm a business operator. It's, it's always the deal guy. There comes a time in your life when you have to go, okay, I'm a real estate GP, but I'm gonna build a badass business. And building a badass business in real estate, you don't even actually have to have a ton of real estate experience to build a, the business side of it. You just have to know how to build business. It's a long way of saying, um, I realized quickly that I was not good at business building from a day-to-day -day perspective. Jason's 10 years older than I am. He comes from a world of running teams. He had a lot of ideas on how we could do it, a lot of which I disagreed with early on because, again, I was in this mind space of, no, it's just this GP entity, like it breaks even. But that was a really conscious decision. And again, we're gonna run short on time, but the next question most people ask is, okay, I agree with that, but how am I ever gonna afford it? Yep. And um, maybe I'll do a podcast episode on that. We can <laughs> chat more about that. But at some point, you have to make that decision or you're making the decision, I'm just going to stay kind of a small deal team, do a few deals a year, and that's what I want to be. And there's like no problem at all. with. Doing and that. you decided, and, and to make it explicit, you decided to limit your own compensation. Because, yeah. I mean, the money's got to come from somewhere. We were in the red for a lot of years intentionally. We didn't take on a GP partner to fund us. Um, I don't know if that was smart, but... I have this really big fear of being owned by somebody else. No, the feeling. Um, it's my biggest fear on earth. Um, and so we just kind of ran to the red. And I think Jason at some point was like, okay, but uh, <laughs> we, we, do, we do have to get out of the red. Uh, I was willing to probably go to, you know, just keep hiring people and growing and betting on the come. Um, and he really brought the like, okay, we're going to do that, but we're also going to do it in a very sustainable build a company. Discipline way. way. Yeah. I think I want to leave it there. Really appreciate it, as yeah. always. Thank you, my man. You're the man. Thank you very much. Such a pleasure. Ah.